Many of us are lucky enough to live in a country where there is an already established World War II reenacting scene, with plenty of units and impressions to choose from. But what if that's not the case? Coming up on this edition of the Reenactors Corner, we're heading to Mexico to hear how a group of guys set up a unit in a part of the world that has very little connection to World War II, and fellow reenactors are thin on the ground. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. We have a special guest here today. His name is Joseph. He's going to tell us about the unique challenges of starting a World War II reenactment group in Mexico. Joseph, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. So I guess to start off, uh, why don't you just tell us about how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting? Um. I've been interested in the Second World War um, since I was a kid. I think that kind of all started. I think most of us probably have a pretty similar history um, where we uh, maybe saw some, maybe like a movie. Like I remember watching uh, A Bridge Too Far when I was a kid and The Longest Day as well. Um, And I remember watching those movies and that really got me into uh into world war ii history i'd always been interested in the military especially since like my father was in the was in the army for for 20 years and my um what is it and my grandpa was in the navy my great grandpa he was he served in world war ii as well so we have like a long tradition of military service in my family and i don't know i guess uh that got me interested in military just knowing that my dad did it and i looked up to my dad a lot but I got interested specifically in World War II for what I mentioned, watching movies like The Longest Day and uh, A Bridge Too Far when I was a kid. And then later on, I started reading books to actually like get to know about it and like know more about like the actual history of it. What about the reenactment aspect of it? You know, what what made you want to kind of transition and, you know, mm-hmm. what made you want to get started with actually reenacting World War II? So when I was in, uh, so when I was watching this kind of, this starts as well with the, um, watching the movies when I was a kid, um, when I was watching the longest day, for some reason, like I just, I mean, we all know that the German uniform, um, and it, ha- it has a lot of tradition in it. And a lot of people like how the German uniform looks and I'm not an exception. I remember watching the longest day, like I said, when I was a kid and I was like, oh yeah, the bad guys, they have some cool uniforms. Cause you know, you know, me as a kid, I, you know, was like, oh, yeah, the Americans are the good guys and the Germans are the bad guys. And that's kind of how that's all I could distinguish them. So I was just like, oh, the bad guys have good have cool uniforms. And I guess ever since that, um, I wanted a German uniform ever since I was a kid. And I guess when I was fifth, about 15 years old, almost 10 years ago, um, I learned about World War II reenacting. And then I, uh, I actually started buying my things there. Um I was, I never really got, I'm from California, I'm from the United States, um, my, I never got into reenacting, like, actual participating in events while I was in the United States, but I had, I was trying to accumulate, uh, I guess, a correct impression, I was planning on joining a, 
the 21st Panzer Division. I had, t- I, I remember uh, it's, it's a, one of the units in the California historical group. I, I never actually joined. Um, but I, that was the kind of my goal I was putting for myself, but certain things happened in my life, um, that I never actually got around to starting reenacting in the United States, but I had always been, I guess, active in the Facebook group. So I never really considered, I never really considered myself a reenactor. I just had like things and I just tried to do things correctly. Um, but here, now that I've been in Mexico, I found a, a group of people that, um, they are interested in, you know, World War II uniforms and whatnot. Um, a lot of them are interested in, especially the German aspect of things. And so, uh, um, they kind of just started off kind of, they weren't even really reenacting as well. They would just kind of just do photo shoots with their uniforms. And I decided like, Hey, let's organize this and actually like try to do events where we go to a place and try to um, actual actually do like some reenactments. I just kind of just started organizing things and we picked a unit, specifically the 250th Infantry Division, also known as the Blue Division. And uh, now we, we're just, we're better organized and we're doing events. And um, I guess I just, I, I'm pretty new to reenacting then, I guess, because we just did our first event in December, but we're, we got a lot of heart, and we're working towards it. That sounds great. How did uh, how did you make contact with the other enthusiasts that you started the group with down there? Um, I know, there's a guy in actually one of the German reenactor groups on Facebook who he posted a photo of him in his uniform, and he had a pretty decent SS uniform. Um, and he's just like, oh yeah, like he just said like greetings from Mexico. Like, and then I decided, oh, he's, I'm moving to Mexico soon. I might as well send him a message to see how things go with reenacting down there. And so I sent him a message and he uh, added me to a group of, um, of the enthusiasts down here. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I started, got into contact with them. And then I, you know, got active in their group as well. I started, helping them because a lot of them do need a lot of help with their uniforms because they some of them are the kind of people where they just kind of like buy things that look german and put and kind of put together whatever they want to um we had a few guys here that they were using like the libra musta uniforms and putting on just like doing a bunch of random non-correct things so i'm just trying to so i tried helping them get their things more straight but uh i guess in i guess the short story i guess a long story short i just found someone who was in the group the german reenactor group and then he put me in contact with everyone else that's great it's interesting to because that must be the situation i've got to imagine in a lot of parts of the world where there are people who are interested in reenactment they're interested in history they're interested in <clears throat> world war 2 stuff german world mm-hmm. war 2 stuff but there's not like an organized, um, structured way for them to participate in this. So they're just buying gear that they like because it's cool and, you know, maybe taking photos in it or mm-hmm. just doing, you know, wearing it every day. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to your knowledge, had there been any organized World War II reenacting anywhere in Mexico? No. In fact, actually... Um well, there is a lot of reenacting here, but they reenact more like the Mexican Revolution, or like the or like there. There's people that they um, put on some of the traditional uh, Native American 
um, Native American clothing or some of their, their ceremonial clothing. And then they'll like do like, they'll reenact some of the rituals or they might not even be reenacting it because it's actually part of their culture. Um, but in a sense there is reenacting here, but specifically world war two, not so much. There's a lot of Mexican revolution, um, from like the early 1900s, but, uh, but they don't I don't think that they actually do events the same way that they do it in the United States, especially since uh um there's a lot of there's a crazy amount of gun control here in Mexico. So it's kinda hard to do things the same way as they do over there. Um But uh but from my knowledge there has not been before the event that we did in December, there has not been a single like World War Two reenacting event that occurred. Um, and so, and that's what everyone else was saying. Everyone was like, oh yeah, this, everyone else who was there was like, this is the first time anything like this has ever happened. And I just assume that they probably know more about that than I do since they've been living here their whole lives. So it's really cool. I, I had the opportunity to go to Mexico. I toured there with my band a few years ago Mm -hmm. and I was really surprised, um, like going to the flea market and seeing that you could get T-shirts with uh, World War II German military emblems with swastikas on them. And I mean, seeing um, Mein Kampf for sale in the subway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very different from America. I mean, I, I guess the cultural attitudes towards World War II Germany must be really different there. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. Um, I would even venture to say that I've met more national socialists here in Mexico than in the United States. Um, well, pe- at least people that identify as national socialists, a lot of time they don't actually understand national socialism. They just, I get, I don't know. They don't understand it well, but they just say, Oh yeah, I'm national socialist and I like Hitler and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. Um, but, um, yeah, I think part of it, I'll, I think a huge reason is because Mexico's uh, participation in the Second World War was super limited. They only sent a squadron of fighter pilots uh, and, and to combat in the Second World War, and they were in the Pacific. They weren't even in Europe. Um, and so I think that Mexico, they didn't really have like – how would I say it? Mexico doesn't – like the people of Mexico didn't really have a uh, – have an experience firsthand as to um, as to what national socialism is and what Nazism is, and I guess it's not as taboo here because, I mean, they weren't really like they didn't really like participate that much in the Second World War, so it isn't a huge part of their history. So yeah, I think that because of that, there's also a little there's also quite a bit of ignorance for the Second World War, unlike in the United States where, you know. Where like uh, the Second World War is such a huge part of our history and our culture, right? And in Europe as well, it's an even bigger part of their history and their culture. And so, uh, national socialism is like, you know, is um, something that you know is a very taboo subject in those places. But in Mexico, it's not like that. It's interesting. I I read a quote recently that kind of stuck with me. That was, uh, "We don't see things as they are; we see things as we are," mm-hmm. and like. As an American, you know, uh, 
think I'm looking at World War II through the lens of American history to some extent mm-hmm. and yeah. the racial strife that's happened in America and the legacy of, of slavery and stuff and all this stuff that really doesn't actually have to do with World War II directly, you know, but mm-hmm. Nazism has become a part of this white supremacy narrative sort of. And so mm-hmm. – um, you know, it's interesting to to see how in a place that doesn't have that same kind of background mm-hmm. that people would see things differently. I think a lot of a lot of listeners, a lot of Americans would probably be surprised to hear that there is really anybody in Mexico who would identify as a national socialist. But of course, um, you know, I'm sure that for those people, like you say, I mean, I w- whether they un- understand it or not, I, I'm not even sure what what national socialist ideology means exactly in the in the construct of 2021 but um i i i consider myself to be very anti-national socialist um and i try to and that's something that i kind of have to maintain especially here since there are so many people that do actually like publicly identify themselves like there might be people that are i guess you could say closet nazis like a lot of reenactors i think in the united states could you could probably consider to be like closet nazis um, but here, there are some, I'm sure. You know, I think some people maybe don't understand. You know, people come at this from all different perspectives, mm-hmm. and I think some people maybe are are not even able to be honest with themselves about their own motivations. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that, that's true. And but the thing is, because national socialism isn't such a taboo here in Mexico, people can openly consider themselves national socialist, and that doesn't really like it doesn't damage their reputation that much. Um, there is um, there, but however, I have noticed that amongst these national socialists here in in Mexico, as much as I say that they don't, that they probably don't understand what national socialism is. At least something that I consider that I have noticed is that a lot of them are pretty anti-Semitic as well, um, which is unfortunate. So we, as a unit, we actually have to be pretty. Uh, um, I guess the term would be gatekeeping. We have to be very like careful with like who we let in the group. And then every time someone is interested in joining the group, we're very clear. It's like we do not tolerate, you know, like extreme political activism. Uh, we don't tolerate discrimination or anything like that. And so we have to be very clear because there are some people that they do want to join the unit. They're not so much is interested. They're not so they're, they're kind of interested in World War II, but they're very much so interested in the politics of Germany and even supportive of it. So we have to kind of be very um, careful and clear with everyone about where we stand on that. Because there are some people that have um, had ideas of like, oh yeah, I want to create like a political organization, right? So or like create yeah, like, that's wild yeah like there's someone who mentioned like and who's mentioned oh yeah i want to my idea was to create like the 39th ss division in mexico like the mexican division and we're just like what are you talking about but <laughs> so well that's wild yeah um well, let's talk about your group. You mm-hmm. guys, I guess, are portraying the Spanish Blue Division, Spanish volunteers mm-hmm. in the German army. Is that true? Yes, that's that's true. Um, I think that's kind of a natural choice. What was your thought process going into it? Why you guys decided that to do that impression? Um, so the reason why is because we speak the same language as the people that uh, that were in that division. We might speak it in a bit of a different accent. I guess it would be like Americans recreating British. Um, but we honestly were thinking that it would probably be better uh, to at least speak the same language as the people that we're recreating. I mean, because if here's the thing, if 
I mean, you can, like, there's a lot of, I think the majority of reenactors in the United States uh, that reenact German probably don't even, they're not fluent in German. Um, and, I mean, you could reenact that way, but I think it's much more correct. It's much more authentic to at least speak the same language. And learning a language is not easy, so I don't really blame anyone for having having a hard time trying to learn German or Russian or whatever they're trying to uh, to portray. But I think, well, we, we already speak Spanish, so we should probably take advantage of that and at least make the experience more authentic and more realistic. That's cool. Yeah, I, I agree with you that language is a big part of culture and mm -hmm. culture is a big part of a person in a way. And um, it's an aspect of reenacting that I think kind of gets forgotten in favor sometimes of material culture or other aspects. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it totally makes sense to to try to do something where you're speaking the same language as the people that you're portraying. There's also the advantage of uh, if you speak the language, you have access to this massive amount of primary source mm -hmm. material and even uh, books written after the war that I mean, in, in your case, would be in Spanish, but that you guys can read and, and get the information from. So that's a big advantage, I think. Yeah. And like, even myself, like, um, I've been I've been trying to teach myself German. Uh, I have a very basic level, but I've been trying to teach myself German, at least because um, a lot of the, um, the paperwork and the primary sources for the Spanish Blue Division were also in German. Um, because because of that, because it was part of the German army, right? Um, but yeah, I think that you're right. In fact, actually, I found a lot of good information because right now we're trying to – the group we're trying to um, portray specifically um, is the first company of the anti-tank component of the uh, of the Blue Division, of the 250th Infantry Division. In Spanish, it's called um, El, El Grupo Antitanque Divisionario 250. So it's like the – um, the anti-tank group, uh, the 250th Divisionary Anti-Tank Group. Um, and, you know, we wanted to really specify it to that. So I was able to find some good books, find out what was the uh, what was the main, like, armament that they used. I found out that they mostly used Pac-36, um, the Pac-36 guns, despite not being very effective anti-tank guns. Um, that was the ones that they used. And so that's probably what we're going to have to... We're gonna to have to build some of those. Um, they did use some uh, some uh, foreign, uh, some like captured some like in some instances there were French uh, guns or captured guns that were used. Um, but I guess the I guess I'm going off on a tangent. But yeah, it's true that we're able to because we speak the language. I was able to have access to books that gave us some really good information on exactly what they used and on, on their history, and it, it just gives you a, a whole new world to explore things in. So just kind of a, a big picture overview for people who don't maybe know about the Spanish Blue Division. Mm -hmm. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about the nature of Spanish volunteers in the German mm -hmm. army and, and how that went in World War II? Yeah. So um, I think a lot of people that are um, familiar with World War II history as well are familiar with the uh, Spanish Civil War that happened before the Second World War. Um, and they're also familiar with the um, participation of, like, the support that the um, the Spanish nationalists received from Germany and from Italy. Uh, and so, because of that, um, the nationalists who were the who were the fascists, uh, sec they were the fascist group that um, was in the war of the Spanish Civil War. Because they won, uh, 
Franco was the one that he became the uh, the leader, the dictator of Spain, and Spain officially became a fascist country. Um, and because of that, when second when the Second World War happened, Spain never really uh, got involved. It st it remained neutral, um, especially since they had just gone through a war, so they couldn't really just um, they couldn't really just immediately you know send their forces to another you know giant war because that would probably have destroyed their country um but um but at least you know uh franco he didn't want to be completely um how do i say he didn't want to be completely ungrateful for the support that he had received from germany and from from italy and so they in in 1941 um he decided to uh to um, create a volunteer division uh, for the Germans, he he decided that um, there would be a Spanish, you know, Spanish volunteers would be recruited to go to be sent to Germany to uh, help fight the Soviets, and that was really actually something something very interesting because a lot of the people in Spain were extremely extremely anti-communist, um, and so they so a lot of their so a lot of volunteers, in fact, uh, between forty five to fifty thousand volunteers uh, served in the Spanish Blue Division dur uh, during its entirety. It was later disbanded in 1943, and the, um, the majority of the volunteers returned to Spain, um, while the few remained and continued fighting. They refused to go home, but um, either way. So these, uh, so these volunteers uh, that went to Germany, you know, they were incorporated into the German army. Um, they were given German uniforms, and uh, they were... Actually, I would even consider that they were more fanatical fighters than the Germans because there are a lot of Germans that were very political, but a lot of the Germans were like – German soldiers were like conscripted schoolboys who they had just gotten pulled from their university classes and sent to the front. But every single one of the Spanish volunteers were um, – well, they were volunteers. They wanted to go and fight and a lot of them were, uh, were phalangistas, the phalangists and um, – so they were very, uh, very rabidly anti-communist. And so they were very uh, effective, very passionate, very fanatical fighters. That's interesting. Um, I guess let's talk about your group. Um, mm -hmm. What about uniforms and equipment? Uh, mm -hmm. I can imagine uh, you're faced with some challenges there mm -hmm. because – uh, this stuff isn't made in Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's got to be imported. It's got to be expensive. What's mm -hmm. uh, how are you, how are you dealing with those challenges? Um, yeah, so that's something that's actually probably our biggest challenge um, here in Mexico. There's a number of different challenges, but that's our biggest challenge because, as you said, um, I mean, even for uh, Americans and Europeans, reenacting gear is very expensive, right? And uh, the thing is, here in Mexico, the economy is uh, not that is not near as good as the economy in you know in Europe or in the United States. I think the peso is about is there's about twenty pesos to a single U.S. dollar, a give or take. Sometimes it fluctuates, um, and so uh, it's hard for people to get things. They always have to be imported. And honestly, like the customs here in Mexico, they're super, they're pretty restrictive. Like you could buy something in the United States from Europe or from China and you just pay for the shipping and it arrives at your house, right? Um, but here in Mexico, if uh, if it has a value, if you buy something and it has a value of more than fifty U.S. dollars, 
um, they tax it. The customs will uh, they'll withhold it, and then you have to go and pay the the taxes. And when you go pick it up, it's pretty. Um, and then there's a lot of things that are pretty restrictive, um, especially because the people here they don't earn as much money. Uh, it sometimes people have to t people might take a little bit longer to get their things together, and at the same time we might have to be a little bit more. Um, tolerant because we do want to have a high quality unit with correct items but we also have to be a little bit more tolerant with the things that they use there's something that might not be 100% completely correct but you know maybe like their economic situation doesn't permit them to like they literally cannot get something better for a long time we also were lucky because right now we also are reenacting in a time where there's so many so many reproductions available that are definitely usable and they're not that and they're like I, th I feel like they're getting more available i don't know what your um view is on that but i think that we do have a i think we're lucky to live where there's so many reproductions available now so it would definitely be easier to reenact now than it than it would have been say like 10 or 20 or 30 years ago oh 100 percent. i mean uh i remember 20 years ago when i got started reenacting there were no reproductions available for a lot of basic kit items mm -hmm. and you had to obtain original and in some cases like rare and desirable collectible items depending on what your impression was um no we i think a lot of reenactors take for granted the availability of reproductions and don't realize just how I mean, I think the market for reproductions isn't huge, mm -hmm. uh, but it's big enough to support the people that make the stuff for us to use. Mm -hmm. um, if we didn't have those uh, manufacturers, if we didn't have those vendors, it would be a, a very, very difficult thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely would. And um, that's something that is that rings true here as well. But at least, like you said, at least, you know, there's so many reproductions that are very... Uh, that are very available, right? I think that, for example, like uniforms, like there's, like I know in the, I don't know what your view is on this, but I've, you know, in a lot of Facebook groups, you know, they're always talking about, oh, I only want to get the very, very, very best uniform. I want to get the Elsinau uniform, the ATF Texels uniforms, right? But like the majority of reproduction uniforms are available or like very usable. Um, I think that one thing that I actually like, hold true that I really believe is that most of these people that are kind of, I guess, elitist in their uniforms and maybe even like condescending to people that, you know, might use, you know, certain reproduction uniforms, they couldn't even tell the difference between an Elsinau uniform or a Gavin, you know, a Gavin uniform or a military harbor uniform, for example, or a storm oh, I, uniform. I totally agree. I mean, uh, I'm not knocking anybody who chooses to buy from mm -hmm. whatever vendor, but I think there's a a major reflection of consumerism in reenacting with mm -hmm. some of this brand hype that happens. And um, I have spent a lot of time with rulers and original uniforms and cheap reproductions from China trying to identify these, you know, massive errors that other people claim to have found. And in every instance, um, I've basically just debunked these, these theories about uh, inferior these uh, cheaper uniforms being uh, somehow wrong in some major way. I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I think I could, we, we could probably do an entire one hour podcast just talking about the value of these reenactor consensus opinions and, yeah. and brand hype and, and loyalty. But uh, mm -hmm. no, and, but bottom line is I, 
I absolutely agree. I mm-hmm. I think that uh, my my attitude is that any of the major manufacturers of uniforms at this time are creating a a totally usable product. I think that with um. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like, even then, like with the wartime uniforms, there's, I mean, I, I don't have as much experience, you know, researching or like look handling. I try to, like, I don't have a lot of as much money to be buying original things that I don't know. A lot of people have original items, um, but I do definitely try to like look at pictures, at least on like a lot of these databases that they have original items to get to the, know the details. But one thing I have I will say is that I think a lot of reenactors don't understand, don't understand is that there's so much variation amongst like all of the wartime reproduced things that, um, that, you know, there's not like a specific, like there might be like, there's definitely like things that are correct and incorrect, but there was a lot of variation amongst a lot of different things, you know? So, um, but I think that with uniforms, the, uh, the main tell of quality isn't necessarily in the cut, but in the wool. Um, that is used, but either way, I guess sure. I'm, I'm going off on a tangent there, but, um, but yeah, that's something that we're, um, that we're trying to maintain is that, that I, that I kind of try to remember is that we, we here in Mexico, we need to not kind of fall for those reenactor consensus, like you were mentioning opinions and, um, and honestly, cause like some of these people, they can't really afford like crazy expensive, like they can't go like if someone wants to buy like some of the higher end uniforms, like honestly, like good on them. I think that that's, if you're able to do that, I think that that's a, uh, that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I guess the issue is when, you know, we need to avoid, uh, what is it in our unit specifically, um, letting those opinions, you know, be like kind of come into our unit and let, we don't want elitism to exist in our unit. And so we do need to, um, but like, like we're take, talking about, we do have a lot of like, we're lucky because a lot of the re like the reproduction items are very usable. I mean, one of the, um, one of the, uh, you know, the vendors that we do recommend is actually Hickey shop, even for wool uniforms, even if I don't, I personally don't use them. Uh, I don't have an issue with someone in the unit, like, especially someone who's like actually like pretty poor in the unit. Uh, saving up and buying a wool hickey shop uniform at least he's able to participate in reenacting and then we'll help him we'll lend him things so everything works well um but that, that that's just an example of kind of uh, what i'm talking about so no that sounds great i mean i would i too would rather have somebody um be taking the field in a uniform from hickey shop which is really not wildly different from a, a more expensive uniform mm-hmm. than than have them not be able to participate for economic reasons exactly and, you know and i mean everybody hears the mm-hmm. word privileged get thrown around a lot and it's it's it was really eye opening for me to go to mexico and to stay with people there and be a guest in people's homes and see how people lived and it really uh, gave me some perspective about kind of the value of a dollar and and i mean th- when i was in uh mexico city you know the i there's obviously a lot that i really loved there the food was some of the best food i've had in the whole world and mm-hmm. uh i met friends there that and had a wonderful time and people were really generous but uh as far as being poor um I felt like the poorest guy I ever met in the United States was living like a king compared to people, mm-hmm. in, some people in Mexico City. Yeah. Um, so 
to tell somebody, okay, well, you shouldn't buy a uniform that costs $70. You should buy a uniform that costs $150 or $700, where maybe that's, you know, the most expensive thing they're going to own, you know, is uh, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I think it's something that is definitely – that we definitely need to take into account. And like, in all honesty, it's like we were talking about, like the majority of the uniforms available, even the Hickey Shop uniforms are definitely usable. We could post, I could post pictures of my whole unit and, you know, with Hickey Shop uniforms, with, you know, the high quality LCNL uniforms, with military harbor uniforms, and not a single person is going to like see the uniform and be like, oh, that uniform is wrong. You know, it's... Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And like, even then, in my opinion... Um, a uniform is good. A uniform looks much better. It doesn't matter which uniform you have. The uniform is much better uh, when it has that used and dirty look. Any uniform of any quality, once it has that used, dirty, salty look, it looks really good. All right. In my opinion. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So. Let's talk about gun laws. Mm-hmm. I know that gun control is strict there. What is, what is the situation um, for weapons for your reenactment group? Uh, so... Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. So gun laws are extremely strict here in Mexico. Um, and in our reenactment group, uh, it is virtually impossible. For, for reenacting in general, it's virtually impossible to get original World War II weapons. It's virtually impossible. I mean, if you had a lot of money, you could probably like pay for permits or maybe like bribe a few poli- like bribe people who were in like customs or whatnot. But really, like, it's virtually impossible for normal people like us to um, get a hold of um, original World War II weapons. And even if we did get a hold of original World War II weapons, uh, they're illegal to transport in your car. You have to leave them in your home. So we wouldn't be able to, like, take them to and from events. Um, And so we have to kind of resort to using you know replicas of the weapons um right now we're working on getting everyone in the group to have you know like airsoft or denix replicas which they're not they're they're pretty expensive especially since those have to get imported as well um so they're pretty expensive actually there's a guy in the group here who said like if i were to save up for a denix replica of a car 98 i would like i would it would take me two years to save up for that and so one of the um one of the uh, so we're kind of looking into um, here, uh, kind of providing our own replicas. Um, so one thing that they've been doing uh, has been making molds. Actually, I'm going to tell you something. So I did mention that um, World War II original World War II weapons are impossible to get a hold of, um, but we do have things a little bit easier because there is one guy in our unit who he actually has. Um, he has a Spanish Mauser that is almost pretty much identical to a Car 98. Um, it was one of the, uh, um, it was one of the Obedo um, Mausers that was made, and so it's pretty much identical to the Car 98. Um, it has like the takedown disc on the stock. It has like the pins in the same places. It, it's pretty much identical, and so we're able to, we could use that kind of as a, as um as a template for you know creating our own replicas um one thing that they have done which i don't like this idea as much but sometimes it's the only feasible uh option for some of the people here is they'll actually make entirely aluminum cast replicas of this uh spanish mauser that our that our guy has and um 
we're working on moving past that, but for some people, that's what they have, and it's better than having a bunch of people running around with nothing. So, sure. Um, one thing we're looking at. So right now, like I've, I got, I'm trying to, I'm gonna. The next time I go to the United States, I'm gonna try to import a few um, airsoft models that uh, airsoft replicas that we have that I have over there in the United States. Um, what else? Um, we're looking at uh, making uh, molds of of the um, wooden stock of the Spanish Mauser that we have. And uh, we're going to make like fiberglass, you know, models of this, you know, we're going to make fiberglass molds of the stock um, because that would be a lot cheaper for people than having it, you know, custom made out of wood. Um, And then we're going to go and uh, make, you know, cast molds of some of the, of the parts of the, of the bolt, of the barrel, of everything. It's, it's not as perfect as, you know, things might be in the United States or in, in Europe, but you know, we kind of have to work with what we got. And like I said, it's much, I would much rather have my, my team outfitted with a bunch of, you know, fiberglass and aluminum uh, replicas of a Spanish Mauser, which is pretty much a car 98. Um, I would much rather have them with that than just run around with uniforms, but without any weapons at all. It is so limiting when you can't use any kind of weapon at all, even a model or a dummy or an airsoft gun, you know, and mm-hmm. you're trying to do uh, soldiers during wartime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's such a necessary visual and tactile prop, you know, and I think, uh, I mean, what are you going to do? It's like, mm-hmm. I, I like your approach. Necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. Mm-hmm. And like I said, um, uh what is it? Um, we can get a hold of Denix replicas and airsoft replicas. Those those you can be imported into Mexico, and uh, there are people here that do sell them. But the thing is, they're extremely expensive. And it was like we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, some of these people, like one of the guys here, he's like, if I was going to save up for a Denix Car 98, I would take two years saving up for it, right? Yeah. Um, and so right now, like I said, I bought the parts for two and a half. Um, rifle like models of rifles like two and a half uh, airsoft replicas um i think the only thing missing from the third replica would be the stock which we could probably make with a mold and fiberglass um and i'm gonna try to you know i I bought those and i'm gonna try to see if i could get them into mexico so at least you know we could have two or three more rifles um but it's something that we have to you know we have to be creative about it's not as easy i think people in the united states take for granted that like you can buy original car 98s i mean you might have to save up a little bit but you can in a, i think in a few months i think most people that you know most adults could save up enough to buy an original german car 98 even if it's a russian capture one it's still an original german car 98 from the war but they t- i think people take the for advantage um people take for granted i mean what they have and the advantages they have of living in you know, in places where those are so widely available. Oh, I see it all the time on social media. Someone will post a picture of them with a, a Denix or an Airsoft K98, and there'll be some kind of boorish comment from someone being like, oh, you know, why don't you have a real gun? Oh, you don't live in America? Like, sucks to suck, you know, like mm-hmm. American flag emoji, eagle. And it's mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, this person is doing what they have to do or can do with the... Mm-hmm. You know, you got to play the hand you're dealt. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, I liked, Joseph, you mentioned earlier that you were kind of thinking about maybe making a replica of an anti-tank cannon. Is that something mm-hmm. you guys are talking about? Yeah. Um, actually, we are kind of lucky because one of the guys in the unit, 
um, he actually makes model Kubelwagens and sells them. So um, he has like welders. He knows how to work with metal. He has like his own little furnace for uh, melting down aluminum and stuff like that. Um, obviously, it would be good to uh, make one out of steel, but at the very least, I think that we could be able to um, make a, a Pack 36 cannon, which was the uh, anti-tank gun that was most commonly used by the anti-tank components of the Blue Division. Um, but I think with his, you know, expertise on welding and whatnot, uh, we could definitely um, put together a cannon. And I think it would be easier with the pack. I think it also convenient because I feel like looking at the different anti-tank guns that the Germans employed during the Second World War, I feel like the Pack 36 would be the simplest to recreate. And lucky for us, it's the one that was most commonly used by the Blue Division. Yeah, it's also the easiest one to move around. Um I think those things are great for reenactment. I used to be in a uh, reenactment group that had a Soviet, I guess it was a 45 millimeter anti-tank gun that was based on the Pac-36 or was a license design or something. I'm not sure of the details, but um, it was a really handy thing to have. Mm -hmm. uh, we also had a Pac-38, which was a lot harder to move around because it was much bigger. And then uh, the group had had the, an opportunity to get a pack 40 at one point, but passed on it partially because uh, it was going to be so hard to move the thing, not only in the field to pick it up and move it because it was so huge, but even just to put it on a trailer just because of the size of the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like here, and uh, that's something that's good for us. Like the size of a pack 36 is, is much smaller than the other ones. And that's also convenient for us because um, how would I say it? Because here in Mexico, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of issues with like the cartel and whatnot. I mean, I want to also like state that that isn't the only thing. I think a lot of people in the United States just think when they hear about Mexico, they just think about the cartel immediately and like, oh yeah, it's like Afghanistan over there. Um, and so I, I want to just kind of like say that like, um, there's so much more to Mexico than the problem, than like the problems with the cartel, but it definitely is a problem that definitely exists. Um, and because of like the issues with the cartel and like the um, ongoing, honestly, war, kind, like it's kind of it's not a high, uh, it's not a high-paced war, but there's definitely still like uh, conflict and uh, anti-drug operations that the Mexican government is taking part in. Um, so because of that, if um, we have to be really careful, especially when we trans, especially when we're on the freeway. Um, on the highway when we're transporting the, the gun. So I think that having a Pack 36 would also be good because it's something that we could probably have a way that we could take it apart and put it inside a covered trailer. So when we're transporting it, um, no one really sees it and like they don't pull us over or anything like that. Because here in Mexico, if you're driving on the highway and like we have a guy and he's not in our unit, but he's part of the he's uh, but he does like he's interested in uniforms and whatnot. And he does live, live here in the city. Um, in Mexico City, um, he has a uh, he has like an old classic Volkswagen Beetle that he has, and he just painted it in camouflage. And he's gotten pulled over so many times just because he has a camouflage car. And they like, and it's something that you know, if you're thinking like just a camouflage car, you're gonna get pulled over for. Could you imagine if we were like hauling like a like a Pack Forty behind us on a trailer that was like open? <laughs> yeah. What are your opportunities for events? I mean, what are the challenges that you guys are faced with and, and how are you kind of solving those challenges? Um, another one of our, one of, so one of the challenges with events is finding places. 
So like one thing that I took super for granted when I was in the United States and I had to kind of learn a little bit about here is there in the United States, you could just go to a national forest and do whatever you want without getting it, without getting bothered. You could take your guns, you could do whatever you want. You could even do a reenacting reenactment event in a national forest and there would be no issue whatsoever. Um, but because of the gun laws here in Mexico and as well, a lot of the insecurity in some of the places and some of the dangerous places, um, we have to be really careful. Um, and we have to like make sure that we pick places that are safe because honestly, if we go to a place that even if we have permission to be in a certain private property, um, but even if, the, if, but if this place is a place where there's a lot of like, um, cartels driving around, um, if they see a bunch of people, you know, if the cartels or the military or, um, or the police, if they see a bunch of people with military equipment, with rifles and military uniforms, maybe even with some, uh, what look like artillery pieces, um, which would be the anti-tank guns, they, um, they might actually start shooting at us. So we have to kind of pick up, we have to, first off, we have to find private property and then it has to be in a safe place, like in a place where there's not really much, um, there's not really much in terms of the, of like cartel operations or anything like that, which fortunately we have a place that we go to, but we're looking for more. Yeah. That's totally unimaginable to me. Um, it's really terrifying almost to envision a reenactment turning into some kind of a live, uh, war, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that has nothing to do with world war two. Right. It's, uh, that's crazy. And there's no way we could defend ourselves because all of our weapons, like even if we did start getting shot at by the cartels, which would be awful, even if we could defend ourselves, we'd still probably die. Um, right. But <laughs> I mean, a bunch of Denix rifles, I mean, the most we could do would be to put bayonets on those in charge and that, that wouldn't be Terrifying. a good idea. Yeah. Terrifying but, to imagine. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very um, careful. So what kind of events... Uh, are you envisioning that you guys are going to do? You don't have anybody, I guess, to fight against. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it seems like a real tactical is sort of out of the question. What kind of activities do you think that you guys are going to be doing? Um, so uh, I think that um, me personally, um, tacticals don't really, or like battles, those kinds of things don't really like interest me that much. Um, I mean, they'd probably be fun. I think that they would be pretty fun to do. You know, you're in your German uniform and you're running around the romping around the woods with the rifle. I mean, that's fun. But in my opinion, I don't think that there's any really way you could realistically reenact a battle or combat. Um, the only way you could actually really realistically do that or authentically do that would be to put live ammunition and real weapons and have, you know, the Soviet reenactors and the German reenactors try to kill each other, which, I mean, that's out of the question. But... Um, they say that, I think that, um, one thing that I always say is that, you know, that they always say that like war is, you know, 99% sheer boredom and 1% sheer terror. And I think it's much more, uh, it's much more, it's much more realistic to try to, uh, reenact or recreate those more mundane, even boring tasks of war. So I think that, you know, we want to have, we're, we're still going to have fun, but I think that, you know, we're going to try to more go for, you know, maybe like kind of more to the static front sort of deal, or maybe like a little bit behind the lines. Um, we kind of want to, in my opinion, I don't really envision 
taking this unit and then really trying to work towards getting battles because like i said i don't think that you can't really like create a, a battle reenactment and say oh yeah this is exactly how it was back during the war you can't really do that because i mean no one's dying and no one's getting killed and you're not with a mortal terror of possibly dying or i don't know if i'm explaining myself well enough but no you are and i i agree totally i uh, the authenticity compromises that are required for a reenactment battle are are huge. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they are able to sort of overlook those compromises. And for other people, it's a real stumbling block. And for me, it is, it is a stumbling block. You know, I think that World War II reenactment or World War II combat rather is extremely, extremely difficult to portray in an authentic way, if not totally impossible, mm-hmm. um, because there's so many factors. You know, like you said, there's no nobody's getting hurt. The ranges are totally different. The mm-hmm. scale is totally different. There's a total lack in most cases of support weapons and mm-hmm. so on. Um, so, like you, my group, uh, the group that I run, is mostly focused on rear area non-combat stuff. Uh, we like to do immersion events where we just kind of live the life for the weekend. Um, is that the kind of thing that, that you think that your group will be doing? Yeah, that's actually exactly um, kind of the way I want to take things. Um, because, like, the thing is, like like, like we were saying, like, uh, what is it? Like, even if you gave everyone real original World War II weapons and live ammunition – and told everyone to go kill each other. Um, even then, you wouldn't recreate it that realistically because you don't have any. You might like what you don't have artillery, right? Or you don't have like airplane. You don't have air support. You don't have, you know, you don't have like the whole, um, like the whole grand scheme of things. I mean, because battles are so much more than just shooting at people, and so, so and even then, even if you were just shooting at people, it's like impossible. I think, like you said, it's highly unlikely, or it's really hard. Um, to reenact battles and or impossible, I would say it's probably more impossible to reenact battles. So, like you said, I'd I'd rather just uh, you know kind of like you said live the life. Right now, we're kind of um, trying to uh, kind of figure things out still, especially since none of us have actually had experiences reenacting in the United States. So we're like kind of starting from like scratch essentially, because. Um, we don't want to just have it just be like, oh, like one thing that, for example, that I was talking with um, with uh, one of the guys who were, were, were kind of the leaders of the unit. And then one thing that we mentioned first off is we don't want it to just be a weekend where we go camping and get drunk in German uniform. Like that's not really what we're what we're planning on doing. We want to actually like, you know, we could do training. You know, we want to actually have like, um, what is it like scenarios? But uh, I think that, yeah, we're trying to go for. I think that actually what your unit is doing is something similar to what we're trying to do. How many guys do you guys have to start off with? Um, how big's your group? So right now we have about ten members, um, and then we have a few more that are. Uh, we have like four or five more people that are interested, and I'm you know you know telling them where to get the uniforms and where they can get their stuff. It's hard for it to grow that much because there's not as much because like. In the United States and in Europe, like everyone hears about World War II, a lot of people are super interested in it. And so a lot of people, they actually, you know, even if there's like a, I, I would say that reenacting still a, 
not that huge of a community. It's still, I think, a pretty niche community in the United States. It's going to be even more of a niche community here in Mexico. What we don't have in numbers, we're going to try to really uh, make up for it in the quality of our events and our impressions. And I'd rather, I'd honestly rather have a have a reenactment with like four or five guys where we're like, you know, we got everything correct and we're, you know, we got everything good and we're in a foxhole and like actually like living the life than have like a giant public battle with like hundreds of people. Yeah, that sounds like a great weekend. Um, what about public events? Have you guys thought about that yet? We're not really planning on doing public battles per se, but there are car shows and whatnot where we could take some of these, for example, like the Kubelwagens that these, that this guy, that the guy in our unit makes. We could put them on display and then like have information. Maybe we could be showing up with our uniforms, obviously without weapons because that could cause an issue. Kind of like a public display more than anything, kind of like at an air show, how they do public displays at air shows in the U.S. But like an actual public battle, I'm not really sure if that would be feasible. And if I'm going to be honest, I'm personally not interested in doing public battles. But uh, I guess we just probably stick to public displays in like terms to like essentially to get more publicity. I imagine if you guys did some of those public displays at car shows or whatever, you'd have tons of uh, really interested people. Mm-hmm. Um uh, to have even 10 guys in German uniform uh, with a Kubelwagen, I mean, I'm sure it would be, uh, I'm sure people would be really interested in seeing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they have done it before, but uh, this was before like they had an organized unit and they were kind of just um, buying whatever they wanted. And so like you had one guy who would show up in like Libamusta with like full of insignia. And then another guy that had like a, like an East German uniform with SS insignia. And they just kind of just bought whatever they wanted and they would just show up. Um, but now I think we could, even if like people, you know, at those car shows, they're not going to tell the difference. At least now we can like, we can do it a little bit more correctly. And then we could like be more historical in our approach and more educational in our approach, if that makes sense. It's really interesting uh, what you described kind of before you guys started to get organized, the sort of proto reenacting mm-hmm. stage of a mix of uh, kind of whatever you want, repros and some surplus stuff. That There was a lot of that in the United States in years past. And mm-hmm. I think there probably still is on some level people who are at the extreme fringes of reenacting who are just kind of sort of trying to interact with World War II history in this way and kind of whatever way they can or however strikes their fancy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's awesome that you guys have decided to come together and and get organized and be a group and and do things together. It's It's a great development. I guess we just wanted to, you know, organize and like, cause like I was looking at some of the photos and I think that, you know, there's nothing, I think that, I think one of the things that I think that looks really bad in reenacting, reenactment, and this is something that you could agree with, is when you have a bunch of people, but there's no uniformity at all. Um, even if, even if everyone has technically correct impressions and like has correct uniforms and equipment, if there's no uniformity, like you have maybe one guy who's a Fallschirmjager, one guy who's like a, who's, you know, who's infantry, like, from the German army, or other guy who's, you know, SS, like, you know, a bunch of different mixed different things that there's no uniformity, it just doesn't look that great. And so, 
I kind of wanted to move past that and, you know, have some, you know, have good uniformity, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I know I've probably talked about this a, a million times over the years, but I just think that a unit impression trumps individual impressions in every case. Um, there's mm-hmm. something so much more impactful about a group of people doing something together versus uh, one guy or even um, a group of individuals all doing something different. If I'm not mistaken, I think that I always see you putting in the group, uh, ask your unit. And I think some people take it hard, but I mean, it's the truth, right? Um, it's much better yeah, to I- have your unit on one page and working together to have a good unit impression instead of just buying whatever you want. I used to really try harder to sugarcoat the ask your unit thing and Mm -hmm. say, oh, you know, you should consider joining a group and uh, maybe you should, you know, try to get involved in some kind of organized reenactment or whatever. And now Mm -hmm. it's just like, hey, man, ask your unit. It's one of those events you can't really describe it, you sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage, but I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right. Well, our time for today is just about up. Joseph, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap this up? Um, I guess um, one thing that I could say from, like, I guess any advice I could give to anyone who's, you know, whether they're in the United States and there isn't like a unit close by or some reenactment groups close by, or maybe they're in a country where there's just not anything of reenacting. If you're interested in reenacting and you want to participate, I guess my advice would be, be to say just to start i mean obviously try to do things as correctly as you can but just go ahead and start it's better to um start and you know work on it while you're doing it than to just like um than to just like put it off constantly because you don't feel like you're ready so just go ahead and start that would be my advice to anyone that uh, feels like they don't really have anyone they can reenact with That's awesome advice. Joseph, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's been really great talking to you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. It's been great uh, talking with you and, you know, talking about our situation here. Cool. I look forward to seeing what you guys do in the future. It's, uh, I think it's really cool what you're doing. Thank you so much. All right. So thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, special thanks to the Patreon supporters who are keeping the lights on at this podcast. We really appreciate your support tremendously. To everybody out there, I will see you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how big or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month on patreon.com slash reenactorscorner. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at the Reenactors Corner. Corner.